This is in some ways the episode that this whole darn thing has been leading up to, right? Most of our listeners probably have no idea about this, but this whole project started as a study of Wilfred Owen's poetry. We would Uh, not be here if it were not for this. Who will remember passing through this gate, the unheroic dead who fed the guns? Who shall absolve the foulness of their fate, those doomed, conscripted, unvictorious ones? Crudely renewed, the salient holds its own. Paid are its dim defenders by this pomp. Paid with a pile of peace-complacent stone, the armies who endured that sullen swamp. Here was the world's worst wound, and here with pride, their name liveth forever, the gateway claims. Was ever an immolation so belied as these intolerably nameless names? Well might the dead who struggled in the slime rise and deride the sepulchre of crime. Welcome to The Pointless Century discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Endure the sullen swamp of the First World War with us tonight as we consider Siegfried Sassoon versus Wilfred Owen. with us what we owe the living and how we remember the dead. Today we're going to be doing Wilfred Owen versus Siegfried Sassoon. And I selected five poems by each. Who knows if we'll actually be able to get through them all, but we'll see what sticks out. I've intentionally left out some that I know that we're going to be talking about later, but I'll list them here for the sake of just putting them out on the table. The poems by Owen that I'm looking at are The Century, Dulce et Decorum Est, Insensibility, Disabled, and S.I.W. And Dolce et Decorum Est is certainly the most famous of his in that batch. That's the most mm-hmm. anthologized Owen poem, probably. And then uh, I'd say Insensibility and Disabled and The Century are pretty well known among people who are into Owen. And SIW is a little bit more obscure. For Siegfried Sassoon, I have Attack, Counterattack, Blighters, And blighters is always put in quotes, or as the Brits insist on saying, inverted commas. Repression of war experience. And perhaps my favorite, on passing the new Menin Gate. I'll give a very brief introduction, which is to say that these are probably the two most famous British poets of the First World War. And they were quite close friends. They were both... I think what we would describe today as gay men, though I don't believe they ever had a relationship. Not that we should assume that, but like, you know, just because they were close friends, I suppose it's worth wondering about it. Owen definitely looked up to Sassoon. So Owen was sort of like the protege. 
and they came from different roots in terms of their class status. They were both lieutenants on the front line, but really the only reason that Owen ended up being a lieutenant was that the British Army was taking so many casualties, and lieutenants were probably the rank that had the highest percentage of casualties because, you know, it's like the guys who had to literally lead their soldiers over the top. If we think back to Paths of Glory, where you have uh, Colonel Dax standing on the parapet blowing his whistle, like just holding nothing but a pistol in his hand. Honestly, it would be probably unusual for a colonel to do that, but I don't know, maybe in the French army, who knows. But the lieutenants would be the guys who'd be doing that like the whole damn way into no man's land and Mm -hmm. just like keep going. And frequently, if anybody listening to this show has any experience in the military, they'll know this, but it's not perhaps obvious to civilians. The lieutenants are the guys who are supposedly in charge, but often when they get there, they know jack shit. And basically, a good relationship between a lieutenant and a sergeant is a process of the lieutenant pretending he or these days she knows what they're doing and the sergeant actually sort of cluing that lieutenant into what needs to be done and what should be done and the lieutenant not being stuck up so much that he or again she won't listen to the sergeant because the sergeant is practically the one with more experience and more of a close relationship with the enlistment because the sergeant would be the highest ranking enlisted person. Anyway, so like I said, Owen only ended up being a lieutenant because the British Army was so fucking desperate. And the way that this works, you know, in the United States is even still very much a class system in so much as you usually end up being a, a lieutenant if you go to the military academy or if you do ROTC while you go to regular college or if you go through regular college and then do a special officer training afterward. So the idea is that you're a little bit older than the like 17 or 18 year old green recruit. You know a little bit more about the world and you've had a little bit more special training. But realistically, in a war like the First World War, that special training might be just like a couple months, you know, like whatever they can do to just get you out there. And in the British system, that would also be inflected through class, right? So Siegfried Sassoon is very much an upper class, like sort of country gentleman type. He describes himself in his memoirs as a fox hunting man. And he's like aristocratic in that sense of being like fucking weird. Just like an odd duck. He looks kind of weird and maybe a little inbred. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but like, you know, he had big ears. He was kind of goofy looking and he was a poet. You know, you can do such things if you, you know, have the money to do so. I can't remember where he was educated, but certainly he had an education. The other weird thing about Sassoon is that he's like literally named after the hero of those Wagner German as fuck operas. So he ends up being this lieutenant in the British army with a first name that's extremely German and a last name that's extremely French. Anyway, Owen, on the other hand, came from a middle class family. And he literally didn't have the money to go to uh, college or university or whatever they call it over there. He did take a couple of classes here and there, but his family was like evangelical or what Brits called evangelical in that era, which is a little bit different from what we might imagine today. But they were, you know, devotees of the Church of England. I guess you might call them Puritans. If, if, if this were another century, you would have called them Puritans, right? And Owen starts out his career working for, uh, what is it? He's working for some kind of a vicar. Am I right about that, Rachel? Yeah. Are you remembering this? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I don't know all the details of what happens when he's working for this vicar, but he basically loses his faith. Probably not like in Jesus Christ, but he does lose his faith in the church. I guess that it makes sense that anyone who might work for a figure of that kind of authority would end up losing his faith in terms of seeing this sort of unequal distribution of everything. And then he goes to France and he's living in France I guess he's teaching English to French students, if I'm understanding that correctly. But he's living in France for the first several years of the war before he actually joins. And he sort of goes back and forth on it. And one of the weirder things about him joining is that it seems like there's probably a good chance that one of the reasons that he joined was that he wanted to write poetry about the war. And also he wanted to be a tough guy. So, you know, Sassoon looks like this goofy, like, smash-faced Brit with big ears. <laughs> And Owen looks, I mean, I, I don't know, you could tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, I've described Owen as actually looking a little bit like Freddie Mercury. He has the thin mustache. He's like, yeah. uh, not super jacked, but kind of tough. But like, also, I would say certainly has a queer look to him. <laughs> but yeah, again, it's sort of hard to know what that would mean in this era. Owen ultimately joins and he goes into combat in like the months that are following the psalm. I think it's in February of 17 that he first goes into combat, if I'm remembering correctly. And he's in the Somme sector. So it's just like completely wrecked. And he suffers at least two nervous breakdowns, as far as I can tell. And the first of them is, I think, triggered by this incident that we see described in the Sentry. And when he suffers the second, they take him out of the line and they send him to the Craiglock Heart Hospital, which is like a cutting edge psychiatric hospital and generally that only had officers there and you know the british army is beginning to realize that like when people break down it isn't just that they're cowards there might just be something wrong with their brains and it's basically what we would call ptsd today though i think that it's also worth speculating on whether it might be actually some combination of ptsd and traumatic brain injury because when they said shell shock they were often thinking about like oh this dude's got his brain scrambled because of all the shells that are hitting the dugout above him so while he's in the hospital, that's where he meets Sassoon, and that's where Sassoon encourages him to work on his war poetry. And we get poems like Dolce at the Coromast and like The Sentry and so on and so forth. Now, Sassoon probably suffered from some degree of shell shock as well. I think that's probably hard for anybody not to. But the real reason he was in the Craig Lockhart Hospital was because he wrote this sort of open letter in the British newspaper, basically calling the whole war a sham, saying that the British government should just negotiate with Germany and get it over with, basically threatening not to fight in it anymore. And so they said, oh, no, he's just crazy. And they sent him to the hospital. If you read the Pat Barker novels, uh, the first one is Regeneration, which deals with William Rivers, the doctor there, basically trying to convince Sassoon to go back to the front, which he eventually does. And Owen eventually goes back to the front as well. Uh, Sassoon survives the war. Owen dies literally one week before the end of the war. And then sort of becomes, I don't know, if you will, the Keats of his generation, which probably is what he wanted to happen. It sounds kind of nasty to say that, but I increasingly think that that's true, that he, he imagined himself dying young because Keats was one of his heroes. I don't know, Sassoon was kind of like the Ezra Pound of that circle, if you know what I mean. He was the hype man. And because of his efforts and some of London's efforts as well, Owen's poetry gets published in 1920. Sassoon had already published a couple of books of poetry before then. I think that his first one comes out in like 1917, and then he has another one in 1918, and then he does his memoirs and whatnot. 
But Owen's poems come out in 1920 with Sassoon and Blunden sort of putting their weight behind it. And he kind of becomes the iconic war poet and often described as something of a pacifist, but I don't think that that's actually correct. What are your overall takes on Owen and Sassoon before we get into individual poems? Some things I've noticed about the styles is they're very similar. If you didn't know any better, you didn't know who was writing which pieces, I don't think I could have made that distinction because they are so similar, especially since Owen was taken under Sassoon's wing. Yeah, I think that's more noticeable in the selection that I picked for today. Like on, on purpose, I tried to pick Owen poems that are a little bit closer to Sassoon. Sassoon did a lot of rhymy, snarky, fuck you poems that Blighters is probably the closest to out of this bunch here. But I actually made a point of trying to pick ones that were a little closer to each other for this session. And even that there are multiple that are similar really says something to how Owen really did take into consideration what he learned. Does it say when these pieces were written? The publication dates aren't really meaningful. If you want to know that information, I would suggest going to Dominic Hibbard's work. John Stallworthy edited the most complete collected poems of Wilfred Owen, and so he did all the archival work comparing the manuscripts and figuring out when they were written and trying to figure out which one's the definitive one, which is kind of hard when you have a poet who dies early in his career. And so you can find that information in John Stallworthy's collected poems, but also Dominic Hibbard, who's sort of what I would say the most important Owen critic. I'm looking at two books by him. One is Owen the Poet, and one is Wilfred Owen the Last Year. And I think Owen the Last Year has an appendix that says the poems of the last year and approximate chronology. So that's kind of nice to have, but I don't always know those offhand. And it's worth keeping in mind that Owen did write almost all of his important poems in the last year of his life. But the other thing that's worth noticing is that he was obsessive. So like the time that you get his first draft is going to be different than when he finishes it. So he'll date a draft and then he'll pick it up again a year later. So sometimes it's kind of hard to exactly put your finger on when it was written. But stuff like Anthem for Doomed Youth, SIW, The Deadbeat, Dolce et Decorum Est, those are relatively early. Those are mid-August to late October 1917. I left out some of his latest poems, like the last poems that he worked on were ones like Spring Offensive and Smile, Smile, Smile and Strange Meeting and Mental Cases. Those are ones that he wrote during his leave and then in his second deployment. So sometimes it might be hard to put a date on him, but people have figured those things out. Generally, the idea with Owen is that he starts out writing more like Sassoon, and he starts out with more romantic influence, and then as he goes along, he gets more what in the day would probably be described as Edwardian, I think, but more what what we would probably today call modernist. And it's worth debating whether Owen ever truly becomes a full modernist, but he definitely influences modern poetry. Anyway, he gets more modernist. He starts to let go of tight rhyme schemes, and he increasingly becomes interested in what he calls para-rhyme, which is a type of a half-rhyme combined with an alliteration. He also gets a little bit more elegiac, 
or elegiac as some people insist on pronouncing it. So as opposed to writing snarky fuck you poems, he's much more writing these sort of laments for the soldiers that he sees dying. Let's give you this, Anna. If somebody asked you, tell me what you think of Wilfred Owen, what would you say? First, I think that we're talking about the man who started this all, who led us down to deep ecology. So obviously I respect him as a poet. Um, I think he, his work, there's a lot to be derived from that. I would say more so than Sassoon even. I guess that's just my personal predilection. I prefer Owen more than Sassoon. I guess for my hot take, I would say that he looks like Burt Reynolds, like an off-brand Burt Reynolds or an off-brand Frank Reynolds. I wasn't expecting Frank Reynolds, <laughs> but I can I, see Burt Reynolds. I don't know. I just looked up Frank Reynolds with a mustache. Yeah. I feel like eventually we're going to end up watching Deliverance. Let's say that Burt Reynolds in Deliverance is like the kind of man that Owen imagined himself being. Whether he actually was that is another question. Maybe he wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wanted to be a tough guy. He wanted to be like the brave lieutenant and that's ultimately what gets him killed. He's like, hey, follow me across this canal. Let's go across these goddamn duck boats and get shot at from a higher point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great way to die. On the fourth, no less. You're so close. You're so close and you still didn't make it. It's like the guy who made it through the war and died from the flu. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of guys like that. I mean, like even down to guys who got sniped a couple minutes after the armistice technically was declared because who's going to stop the sniper, you know? Yeah, it's a nasty situation. And we haven't even fully gotten into it yet, but it is worth wondering whether Owen had a death wish. I suppose it kind of doesn't matter because, you know, he could have very well died either way. But, you know, it's a hot take. In my experience, a death wish goes hand in hand with wanting to be tough. Exactly, exactly. There's something in there with Owen that's wrapped around his mutated sense of Christianity that he like wants to be the sacrifice and one thing that we read about it was this article and i i'm fascinated by this article by adrian cesar or adrian caesar who knows it's called the human problem in wilford owen's poetry published in the critical quarterly back in 87 and he focuses on the way that Even before Owen gets his commission into the army, he's obsessed with this sort of like grotesque suffering of, well, mainly soldiers who have been wounded in the war, but also just suffering in general. And I think it's fair to say that that kind of comes out of his intense Christianity in his younger years. And then he sort of reinterprets this in a weird way. And it's worth reminding ourselves that in this era, the war was frequently pitched as a sort of crusade. And soldiers were frequently presented as being in a strange way Christ-like. And there's a whole subgenre of war poetry where soldiers are telling stories about seeing Jesus. 
And this goes in a few different directions. Uh, we ha see one version of this in an episode in Company K, and there are a number of poems that go in this direction. And I have to assume that that also meant that there were just sort of stories about this. And, and like there are stories in like the Battle of Mons, which is the sort of first time that the Allied troops managed to sort of stop the German advance in 1914. There is a story that ends up circulating. It's based on just a kind of pulp fiction type story that ends up being published in a newspaper, but it ends up getting sort of like interpreted as a legit ghost story where there's this angel or this army of angels that help beat back the Germans. It's, it's very bizarre. This is a culture that wears its mythology really close to its chest. And that's sort of why we've been obsessing at times over Moreau and that's why symbolism is so intertwined with modernism as it emerges. And so, yeah, it's not crazy to think that Owen in some way was interpreting things through these weird frames. Whereas, I don't know, Sassoon's doing something different. Sassoon's doing something more concrete in my mind. And I think that part of that's because he had such a weird upbringing that he was more able to distinguish between the concrete and the conceptual. If put another way, if you are born into the power structure, it's easier for you to see the bullshit and to know the bullshit and to just be like, well, that bullshit's bullshit and there's bullshit and then there's the real world. And so, you know, his most famous act then becomes calling bullshit on the army. Whereas Owen, even when he thinks he's calling bullshit, he's still intertwined with the bullshit because he grew up mired in bullshit in a very different way than Sassoon did. If you're of a certain class, then you can always sort of rise above it. Not going to try and make a comparison to like Novacento, but there is a, there's a clear difference in their class status that I think informs their attitude. And it's not in a way that's completely obvious. It's like being white, cisgender, hetero, and realizing, well, shit, our government is kind of fucked up, but okay. But you still don't fully recognize how much bullshit you're involved in, especially with the privilege that you do have which is seen now with the Black Lives Matter movement and can be tied back to modernism with Owen and Sassoon. Yeah, I mean, I kind of have a different perspective on it because coming out of a sort of elite group myself, I mean, I didn't like grow up wealthy or anything, but because of the kinds of schools that I went to, I ran into a lot of people who I would comfortably describe as from elite backgrounds, right? The, the attitude that I remember seeing so distinctly and that sort of gives me a unique view of the cake eaters, as Anna wants to call them, is that people who come from those upper class and those elite backgrounds when they're young, they can see through all the bullshit. They know that it's bullshit. They haven't been propagandized to in the same way. Or if they were, they could see through their parents at the very least. Children are very good at seeing through their parents. And so as they grow into it, they see the bullshit and they know the bullshit. And then they eventually have to make a choice. Are you going to go along with the bullshit or are you going to call it out? And that's sort of how you get and this is a tradition going literally all the way back to Marx and Engels, right? You'll, you'll get a tradition of people born into privilege taking very radical positions on their society because they have the privilege of seeing it from the top down. And then the people who decide to go along with it very frequently, they know that it's bullshit just as much as everybody else knows that it's bullshit, but they benefit from it. So they go along with it, knowing that it's bullshit, playing the lie, right? 
And that to me is like very different than the realization of the working class that they've been duped and that they need to rise up. And it's very different than the realization of the middle class. Each of those are sort of different flavors and they can and they should be allied to one another. And you're right, Rachel, these cut across racial lines too in interesting ways and in ways that we've seen this year. But there's always that risk that even seeing the bullshit is not enough for everybody to actually do anything about it because at a certain level, they can also, in seeing the bullshit, see that they benefit from it. And so it's more comfortable to go along with it. So Dolce at the Coromest is really, I would say, the number one most anthologized First World War poem. Some might say the most anthologized anti-war poem. Uh, well, I guess we'll wonder if it is. Dolce et decorum est. The term comes from Horace, I believe. Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched to sleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshot, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone was still yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dimmed through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dolce et decorum est, pro patria mori. I know it's been overdone, but still, it does hit hard. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's famous for a reason. The obvious question to ask is what makes it different from war poetry before this poem? What makes it different from the typical types of poetry that are being written at the beginning of the war? It doesn't have a rhyme scheme. Right? Oh, yeah, it does. It has a very clear oh, there rhyme it is. scheme. Yeah, yeah, sorry. A, B, A, C, A, C, A is the rhyme scheme. So it's actually a very complex rhyme scheme. I mean, I don't think it would be terribly complex for a guy like Owen, but it is perhaps a little less obvious to you. One thing that it does do that might have thrown you, though, is that there's a lot of variation in the length of the line. So there's a lot of enjambment. So it's not that like strict metronome meter. Folks like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot sort of start their notion of modernism from let's get away from the metronome meter and get it to something that sounds more like a line of conversation or like a line of song. And you see that for sure in Owen. And I think that the enjambments are some of the most interesting parts of the poem. Even that last line of the first stanza 
is most frequently anthologized as of gas shells dropping softly behind. But I've seen it actually written several different ways because Owen had several different drafts of this before he died. I've seen it as of tired outstripped five nines dropping softly behind, which would have been an extreme enjambment, a very strangely long line. And also a very like specific detail, like any soldier would know what a five nine was, but an ordinary person a hundred years later, like ourselves, doesn't necessarily know what a five nine is. I do like that it's not such an obvious rhyme scheme. It's also brutally honest. Yeah. Which I really like. Yeah, I think that I've seen this described as an effort towards verisimilitude as opposed to abstraction. I would describe it as the concrete versus the abstract, but verisimilitude, okay, that's your fancy English word if you want to have that. By verisimilitude, that's, I guess, your fancy, like, English teacher way of saying, like, well, I realize that we're still reading a poem, but it's supposed to feel real in your head. (laughs) The poet is doing the work to attempt to capture realistically what it would look like and feel like for someone in that situation. That to me is a bit too craft oriented because I think that that's kind of what everybody's trying to do, but people have different approaches to it. I like the concrete because the concrete gets us things like, well, what do they look like? Well, they look like old beggars under sacks, you know? And I realize that that's a simile, but it shows us what they look like in a way that we don't get with the, say, countervailing simile of the crusader which the reader in, let's say, 1920 would be well familiar with, right? Or the countervailing simile of the athlete. Those would be sort of like the going metaphors or the going similes before this cultural cataclysm, that fighting a war is like going on a crusade or fighting a war is like playing the big game. And we have others too, but those are the obvious ones. But like comparing the soldiers to beggars comparing the soldiers to hags. When I teach this, typically I'll use a photo of the Manchester Regiment that Owen was in, and Rachel, you're nodding because I'm sure I've shown it to you before. Like literally they have all mismatched uniforms and they have different rags wrapped around them. And calling them a ragtag group is like really an understatement. They do look like old beggars, just like a beaten up bunch of rough ass dudes. And those were the guys that Owen is describing here. The British Army in the First World War issued you a uniform. And when you went into a rotation, which would typically be, I think, two weeks, unless you you were incredibly lucky, you were not going to get any chance to wash your uniform or to bathe yourself in that time. So you'd usually have like one week in the reserve trench and then one week on the front line. That might change depending on whether there was a, you know, offensive on or whatever. And then when you rotated back, you'd have like, oh, maybe 24 hours or so. And then you'd have inspection and it'd be like, oh shit, you have to get all your shit clean and you'd have to get a bath. And we see this in that poem inspection that I mentioned earlier where, you know, you literally get in trouble if you had like blood on your uniform. On your one and only uniform that literally you're just breaking to tiny bits while you try and survive. Anna, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, you both know that I write better than I speak, or I think I write better than I speak. So I've been writing my thoughts. And my first question to both of you are, isn't what's realistic what people can conceptualize for themselves? And also, before you respond to that, 
I think this poem as a whole, I hate more and more every time I read it. The first time I read it over a year ago, I had that wow effect, you know, that I'm sure you're supposed to have with every great poet. What makes you dislike it more and more? I will get to that. But in this poem, I see the shift between, and maybe I haven't read enough, I probably haven't read enough or watched enough, but from what I've seen, In this poem, we have a whole shift of thinking in just one line when he says, Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. Obviously, right there, you have the shift between the pre-war shine up your ass bullshit to the, oh God, we're all sinners and hacks. And obviously people have said this before, but to me, it's a really sharp break, kind of like other philosophical concepts as well. What is in the mind is not actually what it is in the real world, even though what's real. And then you, you go down that whole rabbit hole. I don't know. Would it interest you to know what people generally take this to have been responding to? Maybe, maybe not. And the reason why I hate it more and more, besides the fact that every time you listen to your favorite song, I don't know, at least for me, it kind of degrades it within your mind. You know, for me, there's that effect going on here, but there's also the fact that I feel like with the whole of other poets' works that I've read, it might be overhyped. Another example is Sylvia Plath. I'm taking poetry next semester, and our one of our whole units is on Plath. And I'm not excited for that one. <laughs> I love like, that you we've already decided what to think about Sylvia Plath. Yeah, I don't. It's, I think she's whiny. You know, whiny has its place, you know. I know, I know whiny has its place, and I've been in her place, but I, I guess I just have no mercy on the other side. Why Hold is on. it overrated? I mean, it's overrated because, I don't know, I feel like he has stronger writings than others that actually make sort of a statement. And maybe that's just me being... Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Does this not make a statement, though? But that's the, that's the fan in you, Anna. So. That's, like the, that's the fan in you that's like, yeah, you got to go to the deep cuts. No doubt you got to go to the deep cuts. But this is like the first one we're looking at. <laughs> I'm not saying that I had solid reasoning. I'm just stating my opinion. Oh, I think you do have solid reasoning. I'm just saying that, like, you know, you've got your gateway drugs and then you've got your hard shit. And this is not the hard shit. But I think that maybe the thing that's interesting about it is that it probably looked like the hard shit to people at first. But that's how it always is. I mean, you're a heavy metal fan. You understand what I'm talking about. poem that Dolce et Decorum Est is most frequently positioned as a response to, and I think that this is a bit reductive in my opinion, but it is how I've seen it taught quite frequently, is Jesse Pope's poem, The Call. Now, if you want to get into some cheesy-ass rhyme schemes, you'd write something like, Who's for the trench? Are you, my laddie? Who will follow French? Are you, my laddie? Who's fretting to begin? Who's going to win? And who wants to save his skin? Do you, my laddie? No, stop. (laughs) Who's for the khaki suit? No. So Jesse Pope writes the most nursery rhyme, sing-song-ass light poem that's basically... You ain't a pussy, are you? You better go to France and fight. I could see this being sung as either like, who is for the trench are you, my laddie? Exactly. Or like, who is for the trench are you, my laddie? 
Yeah. Let's go die in an English heaven. Yeah, let's go die in an English heaven. Exactly. It illustrates how popular poetry of the era of what had continued on from the 19th century was actually extremely close to song and how part of what modernism is doing is moving away from that, which probably sounds a bit contradictory compared to what I just said about Pound and Eliot trying to get away from the metronome and more into the line of the song. But, you know, it's another way of saying, like, they were trying to get into something that was like a sort of more flowing, complex song when other poets had done this, like, very rigid sort of clockwork, whether you want to call it just like a pop song or whether you want to call it, like, I mean, I, Rachel, you did a fun version of that that was like almost like a hardcore, which of course I'm a big fan of, but it's just so stupid, like deeply, deeply stupid. And yet at the same time, it's hard for me not to feel like there's some amount of anti-civilian sentiment and also probably some misogyny in there. I think that Owen's a little bit better at hiding his misogyny than Sassoon is, but I think that's there, especially like Jesse Pope being an older woman who is writing patriotic verse to encourage young men to go to war. And in some cases, including in that poem, more or less doing the old, you know, women won't respect you and you won't be a real man unless you go fight. For then a group of gay men, if you will, who had seen the show themselves to be writing their own poetry, trying to tell civilians what it was like, there's going to be maybe some nasty overtones to it. And that might not be entirely obvious, but I think it's worth pointing out too. So Dolce et Decormes is frequently positioned as a sort of form of witness poem. And you see this a lot in the early Owen poems. Uh, The Century is another example where Owen is really telling a story of something that for the century, we know it for sure actually happened. For Dolce et Decormes, I don't think it's quite as clear. I mean, it's the kind of thing that happened all the time. So in a certain sense, you could say, of course, it actually happened. Did Owen literally see that happen exactly as he describes it? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Right. I mean, maybe part of the sorrow of this might be that this is such a mundane experience for soldiers in a combat zone that's like, ah, shit, he didn't get his mask on in time and he died. You know, it's, it's such a mundane experience. And yet for the civilian, it would really, I think, shock them. But I think you're also right to say, Anna, that like, if you know anything about this, then you have to appreciate how mundane it is. You have to appreciate how Owen is kind of reaching here to like try and shock the reader in a way that's like kind of pandering almost, right? And even going to the Latin quote, you'll see Owen use these kinds of Latin quotes, but in my experience, almost always when he's referencing classical poetry and going to the Latin, it's not like what T.S. Eliot is doing when he's like, you dumb Cretan don't know what I'm referencing. Too bad, right? I think Owen's much more like snarky about it. I don't think that I can come up with any time when he uses a Latin quote when the whole point isn't to invert it. So it's obvious here that he's inverting it. It's obvious here that he's saying the old values, the old lies, right? They're they're just not true anymore. But we see that in high modernism, Eliot's the worst example of it. We see in high modernism that, you know, going in very much the opposite direction. Like you're dumb if you're not trilingual. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, Elliot definitely doesn't give a fuck about you if you can't read Latin and Greek and also French. And Pound too, right? Yeah, they're both in that group. Let's talk about Blighters by Siegfried Sassoon. 
And like I said, this is the most fuck you of the poems that I included in his group here. But he wrote a lot more of these sing-song fuck you poems. The house is crammed, tear beyond tear, they grin and cackle at the show, while prancing ranks of harlots shrill the chorus, drunk with din. We're sure the Kaiser loves the dear old tanks. I'd love to see a tank come down the stalls, lurching to ragtime tunes or home sweet home. There'd be no more jokes in music halls to mock the riddled corpses round Bapom. It's worth noting that Bapom is a town in, I, th I think, the Somme sector. So it's an area of particularly heavy fighting the riddled corpses around Bapom. Of course, you get that. Anyone know blighters? What the hell that means? Urban Dictionary is a friend. They put it as slang, of course. It's a milder form of bastard. Ah, yeah. A person who is regarded with contempt, irritation, or pity according to Oxford Dictionary. And I guess that's why he puts it in quotes. And obviously he's like dissing these people. There's no question about that. I think that I always read it as having an overtone that it may not be intended to have because I'm not exactly an expert on British slang. But yeah, first off, it's just like a slur, more or less, against these people. But in soldier's slang of the era, blighty would be reference to England. So sometimes just England or Britain itself would be called blighty. Or, you know, you'd have the term a blighty wound would be like, you're not going to die, but you're hurt bad enough that they're not going to send you back into combat anymore. So good for you. You're out of it. You get to go back to blighty. So I've always read this as his choice of that term kind of puts those two together automatically. And again, obviously, primarily it's just a slur, but I think it's also thinking that like, well, he's dissing these people who are back in England, like, fuck them. I'm out here fighting in the trenches and they're back home having fun. And that's the wonderful thing about poetry. I don't have to know if Sassoon intended that. I think it's fair enough that I see it. Worth noticing also that he uses the word show capitalized. You have some idiosyncratic capitalizations in Sassoon and in Owen too. And part of that's just because spelling had definitely been standardized by now, but honestly, Owen was quite a shitty speller. But <laughs> that use of show with the capital S was often a term used to refer to combat, the show. You, you still kind of hear that today. What else do you get from this? Short, sweet, and to the point. Yeah. If you published it in a newspaper, people would be more likely to read it if it's shorter. So True. Get it out to the masses. And he did publish in newspapers, but I don't think this one was published in a newspaper. Probably no newspaper editor would have run it, but he did publish it during the war. I think that's really interesting that he got it out in 1917. So this would have been, I believe, in his first book of poetry that was published with war poems in it. I don't know if he published before then, but... The Old Huntsman and Other Poems, 1917. Yeah, exactly. And so that is, as his memoir will do, and his memoir is like a weird quasi-fictionalized memoir. He writes a three-volume quasi-fictionalized memoir, and then later on in his life, he writes it a fucking second time, and I guess less fictionalizes it. I don't know. You know, this is the kind of thing when people go through like horrible brain-twisting experiences, of course, they're going to obsess over it the whole rest of their life. I mean, I suppose some of them decide to never talk about it, but you get what I mean. 
but as as he does in memoirs of a fox hunting man he's making this extended comparison between like well i used to be a fox hunter and now i'm a soldier and in a certain sense this pastime that is this like weird old aristocratic thing also has not one fucking thing to do with what i did in france it's that high irony that of course paul fussell is so enamored of this actually matches really well with Dolce et Decor Mest because here it is short, but they're essentially doing the same thing because here we're talking about a different kind of slang almost. They're making fun of that over-enthusiastic patriotism, yeah. patriotism that yeah. you see mainly at the beginning of the war and then by the end or when he publishes this in 1917. Again, what exists in the mind's reality is different from the world's reality and i could go on but you get the gist yeah i think it's worth noting that i would say more so than any other country with the exception of the u.s at least of the countries that had like major involvements god knows what it was like in brazil or japan but you know like like literally every country was in this war but of the countries that had major involvement other than the u.s the british population had the least of obvious effects they weren't blockaded like Germany. They weren't like literally starving. They weren't getting shelled in their towns like the French were. They didn't have all but a tiny little sliver of the country taken over like Belgium. You know, they didn't get driven to the point of literal revolution like Russia. They were across the channel and they were relatively comfortable. Obviously, there was rationing and all kinds of stuff like that. And obviously, it wasn't like the US where, you know, we were only involved for. I mean, technically a year, effectively a couple of months. But Sassoon is really taking aim at this condition that we as Americans a hundred years later are painfully aware of. The idea that if you are like the most powerful power, you can fight a war and act like nothing's going on and just be really arrogant and be like, yeah, suck it, Kaiser. He's making fun of that comfort exactly. in power there's something nasty about it and he takes it to the logical conclusion that like if you're angry at people being comfortable then what you're saying is i want the war to come to you like i want a tank to come rolling into the music hall and take aim at your ass because you should have to suffer too it's a nasty like almost psychotic thing to wish on someone and, and we can even see as we do in some of the world war one literature we can see little inklings of fascism in there sassu never turned that direction but you can see where that disgruntled soldier sentiment could in appropriate circumstances be turned against the populace itself if you're told oh these people are the problem oh this particular group stabbed you in the back you know what i mean and as i said it is not only anti-civilian but it is also specifically misogynistic describing the harlots it's a nasty motherfucker of a poem i i kind of love it but yeah it's nasty and is saying it did happen though what did happen I've read about the Rue Serpentine. I don't know about you. It's just the whorehouse or the whorehouse sector. There is an interesting and significant discussion that we might want to have about when exactly it is that prostitution becomes illegal because intriguingly, it's right around this time, but obviously not in every country, not all at exactly the same time. But in the United States, sort of allied to the obsession with whether the soldiers are going to drink, there is an obsession with whether the soldiers are going to have their morals corrupted by women of a certain sort. 
And we see this in William March's company, K. And I believe that's where your reference to the Rue Serpentine comes from. And now that would have been a brothel district somewhere in France. And there would have been many of them. And obviously there were, you know, brothels in the U.S. and brothels in Britain as well. But you'd have many more of these close to the front line. And in the Second World War, you have actually a similar situation going on in Hawaii. And it's, you know, historically quite late for that sort of thing. Because like I said, the push to illegalize prostitution happens in around the period of the First World War in the U.S. But you have certain designated sectors, and especially in a place like Hawaii, which would have been a territory, not a state at that point, it would be quite easy to do this. Or you'd have brothels that are specifically for soldiers and sailors, who in that case were getting ready to deploy to the Pacific. I don't think that Sassoon is speaking of literal harlots in this case. I think that Sassoon is taking that perception of women and then applying it to women in general. In this case, chorus girls who are singing in the show, sort of like, oh, all women are all the same, which you get in a lot of misogyny, obviously. Well, we get with Dolce et Decormest. I mean, the big difference between Dolce and Decormest and Blighters is that Blighters is a fantasy, right? And Dolce et Decormest is supposed to be reality. Owen, especially in his early period, has this fantasy of that he's like informing the civilians of what's actually happening in the war. And I think that's something that we can critique or question. But it's very obvious in Dolce et Decormest and it's very obvious in the Sentry. Whereas Sassoon is often doing something different than that, though obviously that's what he was trying to do in his famous letter. And we'll see in poems like Attack and Counterattack that those are like very, very concrete, very, very descriptive. But those oddly aren't his like best known poems necessarily. Let's look at the sentry for a minute. We'd found an old Bosch dugout and he knew and gave us hell for shell on frantic shell, hammered on top but never quite burst through. Rain guttering down in waterfalls of slime, kept slush waist high that rising hour by hour choked the steps too thick with clay to climb. What murk of air remained stank old and sour with fumes of whizbangs and the smell of men who had lived their years and left their curse in the den, if not their corpses. There we heard it from the blast of whizbangs, but one found our door at last buffeting eyes and breath snuffing the candles and thud flump thud down the steep steps came thumping and splashing in the flood deluging muck the sentry's body then his rifle handles of old bosch bombs and mud and ruck on ruck we dredged him up for killed until he whined oh sir my eyes i'm blind i'm blind i'm blind coaxing i held a flame against his lid and said if he could see the least blurred light he was not blind in time he'd get all right i can't he sobbed, eyeballs, huge bulge like squids watch my dreams still. But I forgot him there in posting next for duty and sending a scout to beg a stretcher somewhere and floundering about to other posts under the shrieking air. Those other wretches, how they bled and spewed, and one who would have drowned himself for good. I try not to remember these things now. Let dread hark back for one word only. How half listening to that sentry's moans and jumps, and the wild chattering of his broken teeth renewed most horribly whenever crumps pummeled the roof and slogged the air beneath. Through the dense din, I say, we heard him shout, I see your lights, but ours had long died out. And this was based on a true story. This is definitely based on a true story. And we have it well-documented because of a letter that Owen wrote to his mother. 
that he had an experience almost exactly like this, more or less in the first week of his first deployment to the front line. He, he described it as being not at the front, but in front of the front, more or less in this abandoned dugout in the middle of no man's land, just being shelled to bits. The water just kept climbing up and up and up to his knees and then to his waist. And he didn't feel like he could keep his sanity in a situation like that. And a lot of the sentries, you know, who are supposed to be like standing guard out in front of the dugout, like outside, were just made into ground beef. And he told his sentry to stand like halfway down the staircase. And the guy still got knocked down and blinded. When he's describing one who would have drowned himself for good, we have in his letter to his mom that he said that there, there was a moment where he was like, maybe I'll just let myself fall into the water and drown. Maybe that's just the best way to get out of this. It's a dark scene and a real scene until the end. I guess the end gets a little too conceptual for my taste, but uh, what do we what do we think of it? I'm easily influenced and easily entertained, so I'm gonna be basic and say shit. Okay, but it pairs well with Dolce because it's really showing just how serious and horrible the front line is, and it's bringing the horrors of war and it is fitting and proper. <laughs> are you meaning that ironically? I hope you are. Yeah. <laughs> It's fitting and proper to bring the horrors of war to the eye of civilians. <laughs> I said it's it's not like that. It's uh, the opposite of it's fitting and proper. It's expressing the absolute horrors of the front lines, and it's not holding back. It's being brutally honest. I like new ways of things, changing the scene, how people perceive things. And I like this, and it was moving, as Anna won't say, this is why we study Owen and this is why we study Sassoon and the other poets of that era. You know, I mentioned Blunden, Isaac Rosenberg's another really great example. And it's that effort towards something more like realism. It's an effort towards something more like verisimilitude or something that we might call a concrete record of reality. And yet one thing that we've truly obsessed over in this podcast is like, well, what is realism when we know that obviously you can't literally replicate reality? In that sense, to go against what Rachel was saying, I appreciate how, okay, I don't really have a definition for what real is. I'm I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm not sure that anybody does. I'm not sure we ever will, but you know, that's what we kind of are constantly asking ourselves. We could say that Wilfred Owen is one of the best examples of when keeping it real goes wrong. No, what I was going to say to go against what Rachel was saying is that I appreciate how, quote unquote, real this poem is. But then at the end, he ruins it. And I'll read these two lines for you. He says that through the dense din, I say, we heard him shout, I see your lights, but ours had long died out. Okay, so you're taking this whole scene where this man gets shot in the eye, which is horrible and atrocious, and should be enough to convince the audience of your position on the war, and then you turn it around and do a 180 or 360, and then you're back at the cutesy shit trying to be like, "Mm, well, if a man losing his sight didn't convince you, well, now let's throw in some faux psychology or whatever other term you want to say to try to convince you to see my point about the century and then also about this war. And I think it's just sloppy. Yeah. 
I, I I'd like to yeah. compare it to the end of Novacento. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. No, that's a good point. I think that you're right. That's similar to that. I mean, it's obviously so different, but I think you're right, like conceptually to compare them where in both cases you see the artist going from something that throughout has been meticulously realistic in a certain way to something that's suddenly highly conceptual and symbolic. And it's not been prefaced in any way that would have us expecting symbolism or expecting a concept. And you can read that ending, I think, in multiple different ways, but none of them is, to my mind, very satisfying. I remember when I had first encountered this poem as a high school student, it just drove me nuts. And it's because of what you say, that like the whole rest of the poem is so gritty and realistic. How could it possibly end like that? Are we to suspect that his sight has come back? Are we to suspect that he just thinks that he's seeing light because that's sometimes something that happens when you, you, know, you have a bright blindness and you have a dark blindness? Hours had long gone out is just so romantic and so conceptual. And it's so like, oh, I'm, I'm writing this poem from beyond the grave is sort of the most obvious conceptual way of reading that. They all die together. Okay, their lights go out. There is no light in the war, but yet somehow the centuries enlightened because he served this position and he was wounded honorably or even not honorably. That doesn't. I don't think that's. Sense. Yeah, I. I mean, you can read it that way, but I don't think that that would be Owen's intent. I think the intent is just to show us that he's he's going mad, which is uh, what we see a lot in Owen. That like he's injured physically, he's also injured mentally. He can't really trust his perceptions. We don't know what's going on. But the text is separate from the author's intent. It is. It is. I'll never suggest that it's not. And yet I do think that the author's intent or presumed intent can be a helpful guide, especially for a poem as, to my mind, obviously pointed as this one. This is obviously like, you know, you can see a clear intent here beyond, here, let me show you the horrors of war, right? You can see that's, that's clearly intent. And so if you're seeing that intent, then you kind of have to square your reading with it. That's not to say that there aren't other readings, but it's just to say that the obvious intent of the poem is going to privilege certain readings over others in a way that I think is legitimate. However, I do think that it's fair that when we see a section of a poem that's like, ooh, that was a mistake, uh, which I think the ending of this is fair to say, ooh, that was a mistake. I mean, not like strictly speaking a mistake. He knew what he was doing, but I think that it was the kind of choice that we can see as indicating it being one of the earlier poems that he wrote. He hadn't really fully hit his stride here. That gives us the best opportunities to read something counter to how he might have read it because that helps us explain why it's a mistake. And so to your mind, you're saying that you think the one thing that makes it a mistake is that it risks putting this century on a sort of pedestal as the sort of honorable sacrifice. Is that is that a fair way of recapitulating what you were getting at? Kind of, but not really. I guess I could explain it as... He's working against himself with this section because the whole intent is to, I would say, if we're going from the text of the author and the author's intent in the text, then I would say that, okay, yeah, we were trying to show the horrors of war here. So in saying that the century's lights haven't gone out and he can still see them, he's kind of making his own counterpoint. I guess that's the best way I can describe it. So it would be much stronger if he just ended it after the last, I think the word is beneath. But when he goes on, he sacrifices all of that 
I don't know, pessimism that I love so much. When he describes the sentry as this figure who can still see light. I really like your suggestion to the young Owen. Just like, yeah, end it at beneath. That's such a great idea. And think about how the ending of this is actually so similar to the ending of Dolce et Decormes, where Owen turns towards the reader and is like, I'm telling you this story. Let dread hark back for one word only, how, half listening to that sentry's moans and jumps and the wild chattering of his broken teeth renewed most horribly whenever crumps pummeled the roof and slog the air beneath. I think you're right. It would have been so much better to just end it right there on Beneath, where if you want to give us the impression that they're all going to die as the dugout caves in, the word Beneath does that. It's really good. And we see in the later Owen much more of a willingness to end on a dark word like that, like just a dark, understated word like Beneath. Yeah, I think that he feels compelled to finish the poem in that moment. He feels compelled to write those extra four lines to get it to match up. He doesn't feel like he's built the last corner of the box until he writes those last four lines. But I agree with you, Anna. It might have been better if he just stopped it beneath. In his choice not to do it, I see insecurity as a writer. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Like, oh, I must almost pander to my critics. So then maybe someday, some way I can actually end on beneath or have the confidence and the talent to end on beneath. And then actually that was what I wanted to say all along. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. You see a lack of confidence. And I'd even go so far as to say in some of his best poems, you see a lack of confidence. You see it in this sort of like obsessive attention to detail. And Anthem for Doomed Youth is a really good example of this, which is like almost a perfect poem. And I'd say that maybe the worst thing about Anthem for Doomed Youth is that it's almost a perfect poem. It's like, look what I can do. And as you said, that shows some of the insecurity of the younger poet. Whereas once you get to things like Strange Meeting or even Spring Offensive, he's letting it become more ragged. The, the very last drafts of Spring Offensive, he starts breaking up the stanzas, like intentionally trying to mess up the structure to get that sort of more loose, more dark, more real feel to it. And his obsession with the para-rhyme is part of that too. Like, I want to make a rhyme that doesn't sound like a rhyme. I want it to just be creepy. Hi, I'm Frank Fuchile, and while I'm currently a visiting assistant professor, the whole thing about being a visiting assistant professor is that I really have no idea how long I'll have my job for. If you're a fan of the pointless century, and if you're looking forward to years of future content, I'm humbly asking you to subscribe to our Patreon, buy a t-shirt from our tea public store or write a hopefully positive review in the places where you do those things right now anna rachel and madeline are being paid by the college but who knows how long they will continue funding us i'd like to keep paying them in the future as for me who knows so I'm going to read now two of Siegfried Sassoon's. I'll read Attack 
and then I'll read counterattack. And I don't have any reason to believe that these are actually supposed to go together, but they're always together in my mind because, well, the names are similar, you know, and they're obviously both in this realm of concrete witness poetry. And we'll see a number of other similarities to Owen as we get into them. Attack. At dawn, the ridge emerges massed and dun in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smoldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope, and one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces, masked with fear, they leave their trenches going over the top while the time ticks blank and busy on their wrists and hope with furtive eyes and grappling fists flounders in mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Counterattack. We had gained our first objective hours before, while dawn broke like a face with blinking eyes, pallid, unshaven, and thirsty, blind with smoke. Things seemed all right at first. We held their line with bombers posted, Lewis guns well placed, and clink of shovels deepening the shallow trench. The place was rotten with dead, green clumsy legs, high booted, sprawled and groveled along the saps and trunks face downward in the sucking mud, wallowed like trodden sandbags loosely filled, and naked sodden buttocks, mats of hair, bulged, clotted heads slept in the plastering slime. And then the rain began, the jolly old rain. A yawning soldier knelt against the bank, staring across the morning blear with fog. He wondered when the Allemands would get busy. And then, of course, they started with five nines, traversing, sure as fate and never a dud, mute in the clamor of shells. He watched them burst, spouting dark earth and wire with gusts from hell, while posturing giants dissolved in drifts of smoke. He crouched and flinched, dizzy with galloping fear, sick for escape, loathing the strangled horror and butchered, frantic gestures of the dead. An officer came blundering down the trench. Stand to and man the fire step. On he went, gasping and bawling. Fire step, counterattack. Then the haze lifted, bombing on the right down the old sap, machine guns on the left, and stumbling figures looming out in front. Oh, Christ, they're coming at us. Bullets spat, and he remembered his rifle. Rapid fire, and st- started blazing wildly, then a bang crumpled and spun him sideways, knocked him out to grunt and wriggle. None heeded him. He choked and fought the flapping veils of smothering gloom, lost in a blurred confusion of yells and groans. Down and down and down he sank and drowned, bleeding to death. The counterattack had failed. These are not the snarky Sassoon, though, as you noted in the chat. This is another Sassoon. I would even go so far as to say that this is Sassoon starting to learn something from Owen. But I don't know. Maybe you feel differently. Anna, what do you think? Attack for me is too, I don't know what the word you would use, romantic. To me, it can be summarized in one line. And that's the last line. I think the strongest line is, oh, Jesus, make it stop. (laughs) Okay. 
the rest of it is just i don't know too much description for me but i get he's trying to set the scene sorry what brings these both together is that they are both in the realm of that meticulous description they're almost prosaic if you will not like prosaic as in like ordinary but prosaic as in like this is the way you might describe it in prose only it happens to have rhythm and to a certain extent rhyme scheme no i understand why they're together i'm just i was going to say that counterattack does it better okay um, there's a few more lines to me and maybe it's just my dark and twisted mind but when you really get into i think what sassoon is going for in his description which is the really gutty shit and here are my favorite lines from Counterattack. Wallowed like trodden sandbags, loosely filled, and naked sodden buttocks, mats of hair, bulged, clotted heads slept in the plastering slime. And then the rain began. The jolly old rain. <laughs> I love that part because you get the immediate switch between obviously nasty completely but then he's switching to being nasty and also the rain is from what i've seen it makes the whole situation so much worse oh yeah i don't know those are my thoughts i think out of the two in what his intended purpose is i think counterattack is stronger because to me he's displaying more of what i would think war to be like or what i've conceptualized war to be based on my exposure to war texts whether that be film or literature that's why i appreciate counterattack more than attack but i think that attack does well in the kind of overall pessimism that you see around the war at this time and it's perfectly like i said encapsulated in that last line oh jesus make it stop well i think that the fact that he leads up to that last line is also an indication of how limited it is it's almost like he had to write the whole poem just as a way to get that last line in just to make his point you know and that's why it's weaker yeah this first stanza of counterattack the second half of the first stanza specifically where he talks about the place was rotten with dead green clumsy legs and then all the rest of the description that fills out the rest of that stanza he's intentionally confusing descriptions of the corpses that are just sort of littered about stuck in the mud stuck in the sides of the trench and so on and so forth and the live men who are standing amongst those corpses so it, it all sort of blends together bulged clotted heads slept in the plastering slime we see that in barbus too where he'll describe the soldiers as covered in mud as like emerging from mud where they'll like run into each other's dead bodies and it's like oh this person's dead oh no we might recall from a very long engagement the scene where an officer goes crazy and he's kicking and yelling at his men who he thinks are laying down and refusing to fight and it's because they're all just on the ground dead So we have a lot of these sort of confusions and blurrings of the line between the dead and the living. We see it here as something of a literary technique, but we always must remind ourselves that when we see the same trope repeated again and again and again, that's because it's part of the fabric of reality that these soldiers were living in. This happened often enough that, yes, of course, you're confused about who's alive and who's dead, and there's a leg sticking out, and is this my buddy's leg? Is, Is this guy alive? You know, that's the conditions these men were in, and that they were literally covered in mud, so they literally felt like a part of the land. 
yeah, then we get to things like rainfall, which is a literal condition that we shouldn't take for symbolism. These were record years of rainfall, and it would just be miserable to have to fight in the rain. And then we get that classic, understated British sarcasm, you know, oh, the jolly old rain. Yeah. Well, I was going to say what you just said reminded me of the scenes in Barbuse where they passed the dead man jammed up in the trench. And they say that the rain, if I remember right, they say the rain only makes it temporarily better for the dead men, but worse for the men who are alive. And then it just, the cycle just repeats. I was thinking about the difference between life and death. And actually, we can consider ourselves to be maybe part of the land, if not separate from the land. But it is dangerous, of course, to think about ourselves as separate from the land, because then you get into the Anthropocene. So much of what we see in this era, in of these four years, is that traumatic realization of what it means to be human. And when I say it that way, it sounds really fancy, but it's not, I don't mean it in a fancy way. I mean it in like a very base way, in a way that to me is like coterminous with what Giorgio Agamben calls bare life. Uh, A human, no more, no less. Not a man, not a white man, not a British man, not somebody ready to go die for a scrap of ground that will forever be England's, but just like a mammal who happens to be cursed with a wrinklier brain than other mammals. And so it's thinking really hard about the fact that you're on your way to your death, you know? So in the literature of this era, in the sort of disillusions of this era, we see the imperial subject sort of realize that, oh, shit, we could be machine gunned to death too, right? (laughs) Or you see the humanist subject realize, well, you know, we could be slaughtered same as cattle. And so the war disrupts all of these comforting binaries that Western civilization, insofar as it ever existed, used to prop up one category of people and claim that they were better than another category of people, or even one category of things and claim that they were better than another category of things. And that even goes down to humans on the landscape to realize that one is actually a part of the landscape and that that's that's sort of part of the trauma here. I think that's kind of what you're getting at with your deep ecological critique. I really like SIW. I thought that you would. Do you want to read that one to us? Of course. S.I.W. by Wilfred Owen. I will to the king and offer him consolation in his trouble. For that man there has set his teeth to die and being one that hates obedience, discipline, and orderliness of life. I cannot mourn him. By W.B. Yeats. One, the prologue. Parting goodbye, doubtless they told the lad he'd always show the Hun a brave man's face. Father would soon him dead than in disgrace. Was proud to see him going, I and glad. Perhaps his mother whimpered how she'd fret until he got a nice safe wound to nurse. Sisters would wish girls could shoot, charge, curse. Brothers would send his favorite cigarette. Each week, month after month, they wrote the same, thinking him sheltered in some YM hut, because he said so, riding on his butt. Where once an hour a bullet missed its aim, 
and Mrs. teased the hunger of his brain. His eyes grew old with wincing, and his hand, reckless with ague. Courage leaked as sand from the best sandbags after years of rain. But never leave wound, fever, trench foot, shock. Untrapped the wretch, and death seemed still withheld. For torture of lying mechanically shelved, at the pleasure of this world's powers who'd run amok. He'd see men shoot their hands on night patrol. Their people never knew, yet they were vile. Death sooner than this honor, that's the style. So father said. Two, the action. One dawn, our wire patrol carried him. This time, death had not missed. We could do nothing but wipe his bleeding cough. Could it be accident? Rifles go off. Not sniped? No. Later, they found the English ball. Three, the poem. It was the reason crisis of his soul against more days of inescapable thrall, against infrangibly wired and blind trench wall, curtained with fire, roofed in with creeping fire. Slow grazing fire that would not burn him whole, but kept him for death's promises and scoff and life's half promising and both their riling. Four, the epilogue. With him they buried with the muzzle his teeth had kissed. And truthfully, wrote the mother, Tim died smiling. It is a weird poem on a few levels. What are your thoughts about it, Anna? I know that it is one that you wanted to be sure to talk about. That's what I love. I love how it's so weird, and I love how it's split into four short sections. The way that he breaks it up, and it's almost breaks up the standards. Okay, I do have some questions about the intercut from Yates, but beyond that, I appreciate how he breaks it up. The stanzas are obviously parts of this whole story where he kills himself, but there's more to it than that. I think in our discussions of realism, the first time I read this poem, when I think you sent it to us last fall, I thought to myself at first, okay, is SIW a war thing? (laughs) And then I quickly realized, of course, it's self-inflicted wound, but I don't know, that's more anecdotal than anything. After reading this poem, I'd say a second, a third, a fourth time, however many times that I've read it up to this point, I understand, I think, more so than I did, the feeling behind someone that would want to escape from the war. And, you know, obviously from my own mental experience, but you also see it with examples like, you know, March and the guy in the cornfield. You see it in having sex with someone else's wife to have them get out of the war. I think this poem does more than anything else is question the bounds of what we are capable of when we're faced with trauma that's unimaginable. And then there is trying to be imagined for readers of subsequent generations and words. Yeah. To me, this is, I would say, one of Owen's most modernist poems. 
which kind of seems like a weird thing to say because it's still very structured. It's still very rhymy, but the structure is a structure that is this sort of intentional raggedness that I had mentioned earlier. And it's a structure that, to my mind, is actually playing with our notions of what a heroic epic would be. So it is separated into four sections and to talk about it as, you know, this story of this hero or, if you will, anti-hero. And that there is making it already quite modernist. It's an anti-hero traveling this whole journey from his moments of excitement about the war through to his encounter with the war itself, to courage leaking from him, to trying to make a decision about, well, how is he going to get out of this thing? And then through that, to, in the structure of the poem, incorporate this moment of the poet writing the poems. There's this like weird meta thing happening then in section three that again is very modernist. In fact, so modernist that it almost feels a bit postmodern. And that in doing it this way, it is sort of a critique of the poem itself. We see as serious as this poem is in terms of its topic and in terms of how it's structured with the epigraph and with these different sections. It's like almost too serious, but it's hard to not be too serious for this topic. And then at the same time, it's not a great tragedy. That's another thing that makes it modernist, that it's not a great tragedy. It's this like very minor, very personal tragedy. Like in a certain sense, it's the definition of something that doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of the war, one guy shooting himself, nobody gives a fuck. And then to within that, have the poet writing the poem, trying to sum this up, And I really do love Owen's poem within the poem. And to my mind, I can't even tell you if he was doing this intentionally, but to my mind, this poem within the poem, like almost sounds like him ripping off Eliot. And it's hard for me to say that that would be intentional, but I do think that it is maybe him trying to be at his more modernistic, if you will. And why do I say that? One reason why I say that is because of the repetitions. We saw that a lot in Eliot, the way that like, you know I'm going to repeat this word over and over and over again. And normally it'd be bad writing, but I know that I'm doing it so it can't be bad. It's that I'm pushing you to like think about all the meanings and all the ways that this word can feel. It was the reason crisis of his soul against more days of inescapable thrall, against infrangibly wired and blind trenched wall, curtained with fire, roofed in with creeping fire, slow grazing fire that would not burn him whole but kept him for death's promises and scoff and life's half-promising and both their riling. With him they buried the muzzle, his teeth had kissed, and truthfully wrote the mother, Tim died smiling. And so you also get that great modernistic bang at the end. But think of how similar that is to even something as late as Amiri Baraka writing, it could be pain or pain or pain. We see Elliot doing the same thing in Proof Rock. Here, Owen's doing it with fire. And I think it's worth noting also, curtained with fire, roofed in with creeping fire, slow grazing fire that would not burn him whole. By the time that Owen wrote this, he had probably already read Barbusa's book. 
I know that he read it at some point in the last year of his life. And so there's a good chance. Now, there doesn't need to be a chance for this idea that like fire as in you like you fire a weapon, fire as in you're under fire, fire as in like fire is burning you. That would be something that, of course, everybody could use those turns of phrase that would be obvious. But I think that it's also very likely that some influence from Barbuse is creeping in here. To me, it's a weird poem. And thankfully, it's a poem that knows that it's weird, which we don't always get with Owen. Uh, sometimes with Owen, we get like, oh, yes, it's a poem. And I'm trying to make a, I'm trying to make a poem. And it's a poem. That's a poem is a poem. You know, I think that he knows that it's weird. I think that he even knows that it's weird for him to use this Yeats quote, because Yeats had always been like one of his heroes. And I think that he knows that now he's going beyond something that Yeats would have done. Because again, this isn't about kings being one that hates obedience, discipline, and orderliness of life. I cannot mourn him. Owen is choosing to elegize the exact kind of person that Yeats is saying you can't. I genuinely don't understand the use of the Yeats quote. So maybe someone has some words to enlighten me. I think that there's something really snarky going on there. And the traditional high modern usage of that epigraph would be like, like what we see in Eliot or what we see in Pound, like, we're so clever, we're using this, you know all the nuances of the interpretation of this passage because you've gone through all the best schools and all that. Remember, Owen hadn't gone through all the best schools, right? He took a couple classes here and there, but he loved Yeats. And he's picking this and he's using it almost sarcastically. And here's my reading of it. I will to the king and offer him consolation in his trouble, for that man there has set his teeth to die. And being one that hates obedience, discipline, and orderliness of life, I cannot mourn him. Okay. It sounds like Yeats is dissing the king. It sounds like Yeats is saying, I hate all authority and I hate all order. And so I hate the king and, you know, I'll console him, but I can't mourn him. Or because there are so many pronouns here, we can't really know who these he's are exactly, especially completely out of context. And if I were not a total fraud, I'd bring down my collected Yates that I lost somewhere along the way. I did take a class on Yates once upon a time, right? Never mind the authorial intent. I do suspect that Owen is using this sarcastically anyhow. So let's just look right here. For that man there has set his teeth to die. I love that set his teeth to die. And let's look at how the poem ends. With him, they buried the muzzle his teeth had kissed. That man had set his teeth to die. Once we read the whole poem, we understand that this is an image of him like biting the tip of his gun while he's ready to shoot himself in the head. And that is a man who had set his teeth to die. And being one that hates obedience, discipline, and orderliness of life, I cannot mourn him. So if we read the pronouns differently, suddenly it's, maybe it's Yates saying that like, oh, well, fuck you if you can't follow orders. You don't even get to be mourned. And then here comes Owen writing the poem, yes, I will mourn him. This is my poem of mourning for this man who set his teeth to die. And that to me makes it far and away better than what we see in Eliot or Pound. And I would say far more modernistic, far more taking the classics and then mutating them and being like, no, I'm going to tell you what it actually was like in the mud. 
And that's why I say that in a certain sense, it's almost postmodern by the time we get to that metafictional moment where like the poet is writing the poem inside of the poem. It's not necessarily my personal favorite Owen poem, but it's a deceptive one. There's more going on there than you might think, you know? I'm a noob and I didn't get the gun and the teeth and it just blew my mind because that's totally what it is. <laughs> you know, honestly, that's the kind of thing where like it, you only get that if you read it again and again and again and again. And like, you know, I told you guys that I've been literally reading these poems since I was younger than you are now. So I have an advantage that most people don't have. Like, even if I haven't necessarily done all of the scholarly work, you know, I've read Hibbard and I've read, you know, Stallworthy and whatnot. But even if I'm not like a leading expert on Owen, I mean, I suppose after a few years of the, this, maybe if I'm lucky, I will be. <laughs> But if I'm not a leading expert on Owen, what I do have is I've read these again and again. And that's really the one thing that gets you anywhere with literature. And to me, I think that I just put my finger on the key to the poem. And I don't know if I had that even until this round. <laughs> Getting to the end and being like, oh, shit, the muzzle his teeth had kissed because Owen didn't have to write his teeth. He could have written his lips, but he wrote his teeth. And the only reason he would have written his teeth is because of that epigraph. I'm looking now at Siegfried Sassoon's poem, On Passing the New Menin Gate. Who will remember passing through this gate? The unheroic dead who fed the guns. Who shall absolve the foulness of their fate? Those doomed, conscripted, unvictorious ones. Crudely renewed, the salient holds its own. Paid are its dim defenders by this pomp. Paid with a pile of peace-complacent stone, the armies who endured that sullen swamp. Here was the world's worst wound, and here with pride their name liveth forever, the gateway claims. Was ever an immolation so belied as these intolerably nameless names? Well might the dead who struggled in the slime rise and deride the sepulchre of crime. So he writes this in 1927. This is then about 10 years after the end of the war. And the Menin Gate as it was known during the war, was one of the entrances to the town of Ypres, or Ypres, or Ypres, or if you're a dumbass British soldier, Wipers. It's made a little bit more tricky by the fact that now the Dutch-speaking Belgians have sort of linguistic rights that they didn't once have. And so arguably the Belgian-Dutch pronunciation is more correct, which would be more like yipper. But I don't do that. I, yeah, I'll usually say yipper, but I'm probably even still a little off. But it's better than wipers. Anyway, so the Menin Gate you, you know how if you're in like a small town in Minnesota or Wisconsin, you might have a road that's called the name of whatever town it leads to. Does that make sense? Is that... Yeah, we've got Madison Ave, Janesville Ave. Right, but it's not like they're just naming it that. It's like that's where the road goes, right? 
Yeah. You have that? And I, yeah. In Northwest Ordinance, maybe you have a lot of numbered roads too, but it's definitely true in the South and in the Mid-Atlantic that you'd have like Jarrettsville Road will go to Jarrettsville or Falston Road will go to Falston. And so your gates at the different parts of the city basically lead to other towns. There is a Menin Gate and then there's a gate at every other part of the city leading, and that tells you basically where that road leads. Now, it's not literally a gate, okay? It's, you know, in the day in which they were fighting the war, this so-called gate was really just a roadway, and there were, I think, two stone lions that marked the roadway even after everything else had been blasted to shit. So as the British soldiers would march out this gate, and this is, you know, as I said, in Yipo, and that's the, the term, the salient, which Sassoon capitalizes the salient here because Yipo was a salient, meaning that it sort of jutted out. Terrible spot for taking shell fire from like three different directions. And the front line would be a little bit outside town. So as you were going from your supposed rear position in town, I mean, still, the town got shelled to absolute shit was a really beautiful city and then was basically completely destroyed and then completely rebuilt. And in the war, often, you know, you'll see people using the sort of destruction of the town to demonstrate, you know, what period you're in year by year by year. So you'd have this port would be the French term for it, but it's not really a door. It's actually just a gap in the old wall that circled the city. And there was this sort of running joke that the British soldiers would say to each other as they were passing along this road, because it was called a gate. And because, again, a lot of them are just sort of working class blokes, you know, they'd say, oh, well, last one through, be sure to shut the gate, because it's sort of funny to call it a gate. It then gets constructed or reconstructed this they took this spot, which was a place where so many men marched through to their certain death, and they made it into something that looks like a triumphal arch. But this looks like a triumphal arch, and this is why Sassoon's so pissed off. Because a town that should be known as a place that was just like completely demolished, here was the world's worst wound is then being reconstructed into something that looks beautiful. And what do they put on the inside of the Menin Gate? Well, they were going to list the names of all of the soldiers from the British Empire who went missing while they ran out of space. They've tried to put as many names on the wall as they could. It ended up being all of those who had gone missing and had no known grave in that particular sector, but they cut it off abruptly in, I think, 1917 or 1916. So it basically doesn't include the Battle of Passchendaele, which is Third Yipa, or the end of the war. Those names of the missing are listed at Tyne Cot Cemetery, which is at the end of that battle's push. And that is, I think, also where they list all the New Zealand soldiers. Anyway, the point is you got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who went missing who are remembered on this walls. These intolerably nameless names. 
Sassoon is like offended by how it's like attempting to be personalized in some way. And then this is like really a, an event that is a war defined by anonymity. And when you put this many names on anything, it's like, well, now you're just like showing us how anonymous it is. Like, oh, and here are a bunch of Muhammads and here are a bunch of Johns and here are a bunch of Christophers, you know? Might well the dead who struggled in the slime rise and deride the sepulcher of crime. I'm fascinated by the fact that he has the same exact vision that Abel Gans does at the end of Jacuz, right? That they're going to rise up and tell you about yourself and basically shame the civilians. But what sort of conclusion does that come to, I think, is really unsatisfactory at the end of Jacuz. It ends up being this, like, well, we, ha we can never forget. And we get that line, never forget, in some of the poetry, too. Sassoon was even known to use it. But by never forget, he, you know, was meaning to say, don't fight a stupid war like this again. And never forget can really be used by the state in a million nefarious ways, you know, to perpetuate nationalism, which is what we see in something like the Manning Gate, in really, I would say, all war monuments, paid with a pile of peace-complacent stone. What thoughts do we have about this? I think you put it well that just putting the names there is just making it more anonymous, though that seems counterproductive, but it's just showing, like, who the frick is this, you know? Mm -hmm. I think you put it quite well there, and they're trying to amend it but they're just making it worse <laughs> well i think there's a good argument to be made about whether they're even trying to amend it or not i think that yeah i don't know if the if the purpose is even to make things better or if the state's understanding of making things better is the same as an ordinary person would see you know they're trying to make themselves feel better that's what i see i see the state trying to justify itself to itself to say that, ah, oh, yes, well, after this war, we can have peace is pretty hypocritical when you could have had peace the whole time if you wanted, if you tried hard enough, you know. Well, we have the dead who struggled in this slime. I'm drawn to the way that in a genre like war literature, we have things that are tropes that are simultaneously actual, literal descriptions, right? You have enough people who go through a similar experience and they start talking about the same types of things. And you see that in the descriptions of the slime or of the mud. And this is particularly notable in British descriptions of the Ypres sector, but it's just as relevant in French descriptions of Verdun, which is, you know, you're talking about thousands of miles away, but still. For those of you interested in ecology, the years of the First World War were record rainfall years, which is part of what led to there being so much mud, though it sort of happens inevitably whenever you have that quantity of artillery fire and then people tromping around all over the ground. When we get to later considerations of Owen, where we look at things like exposure or futility, of course, death by the environment becomes really important. Things like trench foot are really important in the memories of the war, you know. Let's talk about the mental experience, the psychological experience of war, which is what Owen is getting at with a poem like Insensibility. Insensibility by Wilfred Owen. 
Happy are men who yet before they are killed can let their veins run cold. Whom no compassion fleers or makes their feet sore on the alleys cobbled with their brothers. The front line withers, but they are troops who fade, not flowers, for poets' tearful fooling. Men gaps fulfilling, losses who might have fought longer, but no one bothers. And some cease feeling, even themselves or for themselves. Dullness best solves the tease and doubt of shelling, and chances strange arithmetic comes simpler than the reckoning of their shilling. They keep no check on armies' decimation. Happy are these who lose imagination. They have enough to carry with ammunition. Their spirit drags no pack. Their old wounds, save with cold, cannot more ache. Having seen all things red, their eyes are rid of the hurt of the color of blood forever. And terror's first constriction over, their hearts remain small drawn, their senses in some scorching cautery of battle, now long since ironed, can laugh among the dying unconcerned. Happy the soldier home with not a notion and somewhere every dawn some men attack and many sighs are drained. Happy the lad whose mind was never trained, his days are worth forgetting more than not. He sings along the march, which we march taciturn because of dusk, the long forlorn relentless tread from larger day to huger night. We wise, who with a thought besmirch blood over all our soul, how should we see our task but through his blunt and lashless eyes? Alive, he is not vital overmuch, dying, not mortal overmuch, nor sad, nor proud, nor curious at all. He cannot tell old man's placidity from his. But cursed are dullers whom no cannon stuns, that they should be as stones. Wretched are they and mean with paucity that never was simplicity. By choice they made themselves immune to pity and whatever moans in man. Before the last sea and the hapless stars, whatever mourns when many leave these shores, whatever shares the eternal reciprocity of tears. Yeah, I like that the length is longer than most other ones. It draws attention to what's in it. And I really appreciate the graphics. It is a very visual poem, and yet it is about a mental state. So that's kind of an interesting separation. It is longer than a lot of Owen's poems. And it's what I would describe as sort of, I want to say his somewhat later, more ragged style the lines are sort of all different lengths. And while he does use rhymes and para rhymes and half rhymes, they sort of show up at odd places because he's not really quite so concerned with a strict rhythm. He's still obviously very rhythmically focused, but he's not using a strict rhythm. I really like how we cut it up. Because if you're looking at the physical text, it's cut up into six pieces. Well, we saw those Roman numerals in SIW. It's not particularly common for him and i've always thought of it 
at least when you do it this way, where the stanzas aren't any particular length necessarily and the lines aren't any particular length necessarily, if you do that with a sort of ragged construction, I always thought of that as a sort of high modernist structure for a poem. You see it in the Romantic era too, but I feel something here that I see connecting between, say, some of, uh, I want to say like Matthew Arnold and some of like pound which is to say that there's a sort of romantic revival then being mutated into high modernism we haven't quite gotten there yet but some of the constructions and some of the rhythms remind me a bit of dover beach for instance which is sort of matthew arnold's like really famous i don't know i think today we'd kind of describe it as a very emo poem of the 19th century the world sucks but i love you is that love I don't know what it is, but it's a kind of sentiment that arguably makes more sense in a war poem than it does in just like a normal romantic poem, right? Because you can get this in Owen in a way that does seem sensible where it can be like, you know, fuck everything, but these are my boys and we fight next to each other and I love them, you know? Though that's not exactly the sentiment here. That's something we get to in, I don't know, things like futility and spring offensive. This is about what happens to people uh, when they get the thousand yard stare. This is about why we might be thankful for the thousand yard stare. When I read this poem, there's a few lines in particular that strike me, and I guess I'll read them for you, and then I'll give my commentary. You know, when he talks about, okay, happy are men, yet yet before they are killed, he'll have their veins run cold. And then he goes on to say, and some cease feeling even themselves for themselves. Happy are these who lose imagination he kind of repeats this theme up until the end when he talks about, you know, obviously about the other stakeholders in the war and the kinds of things that we're interested in when we talk about deep ecology and things like that. But after reading this poem, I only get one thing from it. And maybe it's because he makes it so obvious. But for me, it's deeply sad because he's really talking about that place And it's a very scary place, like from personal experience, you know, that place between feeling and feeling utterly terrible. And basically how to describe it best is that you just feel completely numb to anything. And I imagine war would do that to you. But I guess that's what I take away from this is that, you know, when we talk about the elements or we talk about the leaking, this is the moment when he finally accepts like, oh yeah, I'm numb. And so is everyone else. This leak is a flood. That's what but I think sometimes you gotta admit that sometimes numbness can be nice. Well, and that's what he's no, saying. That's yeah, exactly what he's saying though, is that not only is it nice, it's like actually necessary. Well, and that's the thing too. I'm sure it can be very scary, but like if you've ever gone through something like that, it's a defense because the things that you're going through around you are so terrible and you don't want to feel any of those things so then you reach a point where it's just like i have no more left to give well i don't have anything left to give yeah do you think that happy are men who yet before they are killed can let their veins run cold is owen describing himself or owen envying people who feel less than he does 
I think it might be a little bit of envy. I think so too. I think some of this is like him being very, very into himself, but he thinks of himself as this super sensitive, special poet. And in this, we see a little bit of like, well, if I had less feelings, if I were stupider, if I could just let it go, I could get through this. I've seen guys who could just shut down and get through it, but I can't do that. And those guys are happy. And obviously there's no small amount of irony in his use of the word like happy, but you get the point. You know, I, I do think that he's envying people who feel less than he does. Happy are men who yet before they are killed can let their veins run cold. And then in the second section, and some cease feeling even themselves or for themselves. Dullness best solves the tease and doubt of shelling and chances strange arithmetic. So there's a couple of things going on here. First off, I hear that killed and cold that then get taken up in the second section by feeling. So the cease feeling is to my mind then, because what we're saying here or what I'm sort of building here from these disparate monologues that I give is that the metaphors that we use are built on our literal reality. Like the environment in which we live gives us our repertoire of metaphors to use. So like in SIW, he says, courage leaks like sand from even the best sandbags, right? Well, this is a dude who's seen a lot of sandbags and he knows that if they're sitting in place for a while, eventually they'll leak, right? So similarly, like, Happy are men who yet before they are killed can let their veins run cold. Well, we have like the image of the veins running, the blood running out. And we'll see this in, it's either in Disabled or it's in Ater, or it might be in both. The image of the blood pouring out into the ground and like changing you into someone weaker, someone different, right? Someone colder, right? And some seats feeling even themselves or for themselves. And now I'm thinking back to something like exposure, talking about how well, being out in the elements and in the rain, you get a sort of numbness in your body, right? And that's your body's ability to withstand those harsh environmental conditions. It may eventually lead to your death if you're there for too long, of course. You know, you may lose a finger or a toe or a foot or whatnot, or you may just die of hypothermia, or it may be the thing that you need to do to get through. So he's taking that literal experience of the environment and then making it a metaphor for the way that people respond to these emotional situations and, and cease feeling even themselves or for themselves. Cease feeling even themselves is like, I can't feel my foot. I can't feel a part of my body. I can't feel my sense of compassion or for themselves. And that line, even themselves or for themselves, is really interesting the way that he doubles back and obviously not accidental. Happy are those who lose imagination. There are occasional ones like, happy are these who lose imagination. They have enough to carry with ammunition. That to me is like one of his fairly rare clumsy rhymes. I usually think that his rhymes come off as really slick and clever and dark, but that one strikes me as a little bit awkward. I think that if I imagine him as someone who's like always carrying around a notebook and like that's kind of an annoying thing. And if you'd ever had a moment where it was like, I've got to carry all these rounds of ammo, but also I've got this notebook taking up space in my bag. Maybe that actually is a better way of thinking about, well, how has he come up with this line of rhyming imagination with ammunition as though there are things that you have to choose which one you're going to carry, you know? 
I was taking a history class this past semester, and we read a primary source on the rape of Nanking, and there is this one where this former soldier who now dedicates his life to trying to win back his soul or whatever, but he described that there were contests for orders to come in or like something, but two soldiers are waiting for orders to come in or something. And they had a contest. Whoever could head 100 soldiers first won. And at first, when they went to the camp, they were, like, all appalled. And then they just learned to be numb and then eventually enjoy it. And this pairs so well, and it's stuck with me. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. (laughs) Yeah. Nanking, not a camp, though. Nanking was a city. So it was sacking of a whole city. And you slipped there and said camp because we're thinking about I guess, two different kinds of atrocities. I almost don't want to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I do think it is important to make a distinction here. I mean, there there were atrocities and war crimes in the First World War, but that's not generally what Owen's writing about. I don't know if it makes a difference or not. I mean, I do think that it makes a difference, obviously, in a legal sense. I do think it makes a difference in an experiential sense as well. But when I think of things like Owen writing about the superhuman inhumanities in Spring Offensive, he's talking about all the things that you can't say out loud because they're too horrible. Somebody who wasn't there wouldn't be able to even hear about them. And that kind of shifts when you get to a place after the Second World War where it ends up being about like, well, these things are so horrible that we have to talk about them, that we have to prosecute them because so many of them were done to civilians. And I have heard the story about the beheading competition in Nanking, and I've heard heard the stories about all the other horrible things that happened. I mean, I do think it matters that those are not the kinds of things that Owen is writing about, but he is also writing about people who do similarly need to make themselves completely numb for them to survive. I forgot my second point. My second point was when I was talking about numbness, and then usually in that numbness, you find a sense of loneliness and then maybe in the poem or maybe in the war more generally, you have to consider like, what am I doing? You know, am I not feeling? What am I? Am I flesh? Am I just a number like we are today in comparison to a time that we're not in war? I don't know. I just think it's really interesting to consider, okay, even if I can't feel anything, then what's the value of me and what I can do? Like, why do people love me? Like, why do people value and appreciate me? Right, exactly. And, you know, and that goes back to, you know, what do I produce? Why do I matter in this war? You know, there's obviously things or motives for me to feel numb, but why is that? I mean, I think that there is, in a certain sense, all the war poetry, but especially the poetry of the First World War, is an effort to make meaning out of meaninglessness. And I think Owen starts with something that feels very rational, that feels very like, this is what it was like, this is what you see there, and this is what you, the civilians, need to know. And then he eventually gets to something that's like even more highly romantic than where he had started, which is sort of counterintuitive. And it ends up being, you know, stuff like this, where he's like trying to show you how it feels. And it's funny because you could see that he's deriving meaning out of what he can write about the war. He's also deriving meaning out of like, look at me, I am still a functional soldier. 
he doesn't have these moments of insensibility or maybe he finally got there in his second tour so he would have written this at least the first drafts of it before he went back to the front at the very end of the war and what we know of his first rotation is that he shell-shocked so badly that basically they found him you know just lying on the ground completely unresponsive unable to do anything or say anything and maybe what he's wishing for here is that he could just like turn part of his brain off and just continue to function in some ways in some of his other poetry you know the way i read it is actually like some of the reverse how can i cope with this Let's look at Sassoon's repression of war experience, which remember Sassoon and Owen meet each other in the Craig Lockhart Hospital. So they would have known a number of men suffering from shell shock of various sorts. Now light the candles. One, two, there's a moth. What silly beggars they are to blunder in and scorch their wings with glory, liquid flame. No, no, not that. It's bad to think of war. When thoughts you've gagged all day come back to scare you, and it's been proved that soldiers don't go mad unless they lose control of ugly thoughts that drive them out to jabber among the trees. Now light your pipe. Look, what a steady hand. Draw a deep breath. Stop thinking. Count 15, and you're right as rain. Why won't it rain? I wish there'd be a thunderstorm tonight with buckets full of water to sluice the dark and make the roses hang their dripping heads. Books. What a jolly company they are, standing so quiet and patient on their shelves, dressed in dim brown and black and white and green and every kind of color. Which will you read? Come on. Oh, do read something. They're so wise. I tell you all the wisdom of the world is waiting for you on those shelves, and yet you sit and gnaw your nails and let your pipe out and listen to the silence on the ceiling. There's one big dizzy moth that bumps and flutters, and in the breathless air outside the house, the garden waits for something that delays. There must be crowds of ghosts among the trees. Not people killed in battle. They're in France but horrible shapes and shrouds, old men who died slow, natural deaths, old men with ugly souls who wore their bodies out with nasty sins. You're quiet and peaceful, summering safe at home. You'd never think there was a bloody war on. Oh, yes, you would. Why, you can hear the guns. Hark, thud, thud, thud. Quite soft, they never cease those whispering guns. Oh, Christ, I want to go out and screech at them to stop. I'm going crazy. I'm going stark staring mad because of the guns. Sassoon was just vegging out. I light the candle, one, two, three. Oh, there's a moth, blah, 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 blah. Maybe. I don't think this is him, though. I think this is a persona poem. I always read this as being a character. Like, maybe he's writing about somebody he knew in the hospital or, uh, you know, proverbial shell shock case. But I don't think he's describing himself. I mean, like, maybe in some moments. Well, at least the person that's in there, um, they're vegging out and they're like, oh, can't think about that. Let's try and be happy. And, like, he's just going to these random things. And he's just wishing that he'd be less numb. Make those roses hang their dripping heads. 
wants to feel emotion books oh those are nice it kind of sounds like me when i go on a tangent you're just going and like spiraling yeah and this is one of the earlier efforts to draw attention to that during the war sassoon was already writing about what it was going to be like after the war you see that in a couple of his hipty hopty fuck you poems or <laughs> i don't know what i want to call them. yeah there's like a whole Castle of rhymy sing songs snarky ass fuck you poems but he was doing this during the war already like imagining what it would be like for veterans at the end of the war or after the war who are wounded and then looking back on it and here in this case because he's probably writing this while he's at craig lockhart or at least he's imagining a place like craig lockhart where it's like, well, this guy is not fighting in the war. His war is over, so to speak, right? He, he may be physically wounded, but more importantly, he's mentally not capable of continuing to fight. And even though his war is over, the, the war continues onward. And I suppose at the end, it's kind of ambiguous. It could be that the, the war is ongoing, but it could also be that it's just like in his head, the war will forever be ongoing. And maybe we're in a territory sort of similar to something like Johnny Got His Gun, where it doesn't really matter if it's 1938, you know, for as far as that guy is concerned, it's the politics of 1918. So that tail end, uh, I'm going stark staring mad because of the guns, is kind of ambiguous. Are we supposed to take that he can hear guns from where he is, or is he just like losing his mind? I think that most people would probably go with the latter, but in some cases, you know, you would be able to hear when they blew the Machine Ridge mine of Beneath Hill 60 fame, when they blew the Machine Ridge mine, that could be heard all the way from Dublin. Oh, I'm sure. I don't doubt it. So, <laughs> so yeah, there were situations in which if they were using particularly heavy guns, you could hear what was going on in Belgium all the way from England. Regardless, I think that we're supposed to take this guy as losing his mind at the end. That's what he tells us. And it's sort of a break in the frame that doesn't really feel very elegant. But I don't know. It's Sassoon, so he kind of gets away with whatever he wants to. When you read this poem and when I reread it again, like, you know, my, my family is absolutely laden with attention disorders. So when I read this poem, it sounds absolutely like multiple members in my family and like what their internal thought process is they'll be thinking about one thing one time and then they'll just jump to a completely different thing that we weren't talking about but i think if you apply that and those kinds of thoughts to you know what he's actually trying to touch on in the poem it's kind of like insensibility it's another defense mechanism you know you're trying to deny the thing that you don't want to think about so then you think about everything else and you know basically distraction as another way to cope and maybe he envies that in this poem but i think it's really interesting how he talks about it like he admires it but then also i don't know critiques it at the same time yeah you give us an interesting historical perspective on a concept like attention or focus whereas sassoon is writing this that is supposed to be a sign of abnormality and now a hundred years later we have a very well-developed rhetoric that takes into account the way that the human mind very naturally skips from topic to topic part of that is our awareness of things like attention disorders, which by now I suppose it's abundantly clear that most of us on this show have. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'll be the first Ooh, to me? raise my hand in a minute. Like, yeah, I mean if you but, didn't tell by now and yeah. you're still listening, like 
what what have you been doing this whole time what is supposed to obviously be abnormal here is something that we're like very familiar with in our ordinary lives today and that we're much more comfortable talking about whereas a hundred years ago i think coming out of this british mainstream culture of like we are the most industrialized and we are a military and we see the thing and we do the thing. And even when asked to do the impossible thing, you continue to do the thing like your fucking machine, like a culture that refuses to recognize the way that the human mind flits around. What we see here then in the imitation of the mind defined as abnormal, groaning under the strain of psychological turmoil is something like a modernist strategy, an effort to follow the contours of the mind, the stream of consciousness, if you will, is what we generally tend to call it in prose. It's, you know, a bit different in poetry in the way it comes across. And we see Owen doing a similar thing in Ater, that mind just jumping from place to place to place. Though he has, I think, a little bit more of a logical shaping behind it. But we also see here, because this is something that then becomes a modernist thing, whether or not it's coming out of the experience of mental illness, it becomes a modernist thing to try and recapture the experience of the mind, including, you know, the jumps of that mind from thing to thing to thing. Then that gets carried all the way over. I mean, we, and we see a shitload of this in Johnny Got His Gun. Yeah. Yeah, like 20 years later, because Sassoon publishes this in 1918, literally at the very end of the war. 20 years later, Trumbo is doing that for a whole novel. It's like a literal novel that's entirely a stream of consciousness. Yeah, alternating between chapters in a very specific kind of a way to capture a world entirely of the mind when the body is so completely wrecked that there is no physical world. By the time we get to postmodernism, then like that constant shift becomes the whole structure of the literature itself. Think like Slaughterhouse-Five or something like that, right? And literally a trauma narrative. A trauma narrative set up around the inability to look at and speak about the thing and that defense mechanism of flitting from place to place to place. And we, of course, get it in narratives that aren't about trauma or mental illness as well. But the point is that in the hundred years since this is written, we get a whole developed repertoire of literary ways of showing the mind jumping from place to place. And we also get a social evolution in basically my lifetime of a willingness to talk about that in our own personal lives. So like I went through my whole education acting like I didn't have ADD, very adamantly trying to make sure that I could pass as neurotypical and even as smart when it always takes me like five times longer to do everything and what comes out on the other end occasionally does look a little crazy. That's something that I think for your generation is a little bit more like accepted, like, well, this is a different way to be and you can talk about it and it's no big deal. I agree, but you know, obviously it's still not perfect, but we're talking about how it's improved, then yeah, I definitely think that it has. I do think though, I guess from where I come from, it's important to acknowledge that we have uh, still a long way to go. Oh, for sure. But just in the same way that like 
we as a culture are more aware of PTSD. We as a culture are more aware of ADD. And it, it, there's things that are topics of conversation. It, I mean, like I didn't literally get beaten when I was a kid for not paying attention, but there were several years, especially as I was going through elementary school in the 80s and early 90s, where it was like, there's something wrong with this kid. Like I would just constantly be getting in trouble in a way that these days, you know, they would be like, okay, he has trouble paying attention. You, you don't need to constantly be getting him in trouble. So yeah, obviously there's still a ways to go. But looking back at this 100 years ago, remember that it is institutions like the Craig Lockhart War Hospital and poems like this poem right here that are just establishing the fact from the get-go that there is such a thing as PTSD and that people's brains will operate differently when they're under certain kinds of strange and they may change. And that that isn't just like you're a shirker or a coward, that that is the contours of what the human brain can do and that everybody's brain isn't the same as everybody else's and that our brains aren't going to actually suit themselves to industrial slaughter super well because that's not very natural. It's not even getting to the point of like, well, maybe nobody's brain was actually fit to do that ever. <laughs> but that's sort of implicit. With blood, my eyes, see the light shine. With blood, my eyes, Owen's disabled. And this is another one where we see the poet imagining a character and then casting forward to the end of the war and to afterwards. He sat in a wheeled chair waiting for dark and shivered in his ghastly suit of gray, legless, sewn short at elbow. Through the park, voices of boys rang saddening like a hymn, voices of play and pleasure after day, till gathering sleep had mothered them from him. About this time, town used to swing so gay when the glow lamps budded in the light blue trees and girls glanced lovelier as the air grew dim in the old times before he threw away his knees. Now he will never feel again how slim girls' waists are or how warm their subtle hands. All of them touch him like some queer disease. There was an artist silly for his face, for it was younger than his youth last year. Now he is old, his back will never brace. He's lost his color very far from here. Poured it down shell holes till the veins ran dry and half his lifetime lapsed in the hot race and leap of purple spurted from his thigh. One time he liked a blood smear down his legs after the matches carried shoulder high. It was after football when he'd drunk a peg. He thought he'd better join, he wonders why. Someone had said he'd look a god in kilts and that's why, and maybe too, to please his Meg. Aye, that was it, to please the giddy jilts. He asked to join, he didn't have to beg. Smiling, they wrote his lie, aged 19 years. Germans he scarcely thought of, all their guilt in Austria's did not move him, and no fears of fear came yet. He thought of jeweled hilts for daggers in plaid socks, of smart salutes and care of arms and leave and pay arrears, esprit de corps and hints for young recruits, and soon he was drafted out with drums and cheers. Some cheered him home, but not as crowds cheer goal. Only a solemn man who brought him fruits thanked him and then inquired about his soul. 
Now he will spend a few sick years in institutes and do what things the rules consider wise and take whatever pity they may dole. Tonight he noticed how the women's eyes passed from him to the strong men that were whole. How cold and late it is. Why don't they come and put him to bed? Why don't they come? I've always thought that the ending is similar to the ending of Repression of War Experience. That it has that like weird turn where like, now you're yelling at me. It feels like it wants to be affecting or deep, but it's kind of hard for me not to think that it's just kind of cheap, but maybe you disagree. I do think that this is what I would call a less mature Owen poem. Sometimes you laugh at certain things in the Owen poems and I'm like, no, that's not worth laughing at. But I don't think this is as developed as insensibility in terms of his stylistic or imagistic mastery. But you go ahead. What was funny or silly or what what didn't work for you? When he talks about, and I understand why it's in there. Like, I understand why he's talking about, you know, the experiences that he won't get to have, you know, like with the women. But I don't know, to me, it's just comparable to some of the romances that are in science fiction novels and not saying that I've read like a lot of science fiction, but it's just... Are you still ragging on Gunnar Cade here? Yeah, I I don't know. I just think I understand why it's included. I mean, less so for science fiction, like fuck the fanboys. But in this, obviously, I have to take the reading that it's cheesy. I think that I can summarize your point is like, why are dudes so bad at writing about why anyone would care about women? You'd think they'd be able to do that better. Well, I mean, yeah, if they obsess over them so much, I mean, the least you can do and service us is actually like write well, you know? I think that in the example of at least two of the men who you were talking about here, uh, they had the disadvantage of not being as into women as other men. And to be fair, both Owen and Delaney, I mean, Delaney for sure, and Owen, I think as far as we can tell, did have relationships, you know, intimate relationships with women, but they were both primarily gay. So maybe they get a pass for a little bit of this. I think that there's also some element of this that like in its era would pass as like, oh, this is so tragically ironic and to us after seeing this like a million times it's like no shit dude you were a dumbass who thought that you'd look like you were really tough if you joined the military and then you got your body fucked up and now the women don't care about you anymore like you should have known but remember they didn't have the benefit of your gritty war movies that we grew up with well i was just gonna say like yeah what do you expect from war? your body gets fucked up and you're not gonna fuck anymore like i'm i'm sorry that's the pipeline and they were just coming out of a different culture and again the idea of you join the military and you're thinking about the uniforms and look at how cool we are and this stuff it sounds silly to us but this was really like the kind of recruiting pitch that they gave a hundred years ago. It's the kind of stuff that we see in Jesse Pope and her poem about like, hey boy, get in there and fight, you know? And there were a whole genres of Victorian poetry that operated this way too. Stuff like, oh, I've got a flower, I'm falling in love. And you have genres of war poems that operate this way. I'm talking about the uniforms. I'm making a metaphor to sport because you're British, you make it a singular word. I, you know, talking about the English heaven and shit like that. You know what I mean? 
And what we see here, I think, in something like Disabled, what Owen is actually doing that might escape us if we're not entirely familiar with what we're reading, is he's kind of inverting certain kinds of Victorian tropes of the athlete, of the healthy masculine hero, or he's using them to a different purpose. There's definitely a lot of reference to or allusion to A.E. Hausman. I think that's to an athlete dying young. When was this written? This would have been one of his earlier poems. He writes this around the time that he writes Dolce at Decorum Est. And I think that it gives us an example of a direction that he does not go in. Because but... I know he was struggling with his religion at the time. And I know he worked at a... Uh, monastery or something yeah well this is later than that but this is relatively early in the war i mean like when we're talking about his like actually important poems the distinction between early and late is pretty slim because he's writing those poems in a period of like 18 months this is drafted at craig lockhart october 1917 a little over a year before he died. And that is why I say that it's one of his earlier poems, because, you know, like I said, if you're saying his poems are written in a period of like 18 months, this is on the earlier end of things. And I think he's trying out different ways of writing about poetry. And I'm looking in the stalworthy edition of his collected poems, where he notes that there is a pretty obvious reference to A.E. Hausman's To an Athlete Dying Young, something that like everybody who read this poem would know about. And Apparently, Robert Graves read this and was like, oh, this is great. I don't think it's great, but whatever. Oh, they're, they're, they're all trying to figure out what a good war poem is going to look like. And they're not really quite sure. They're just like hanging out in this hospital doing this rather than like losing their minds, I suppose. The time you won your town, the race, we chaired you through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by and home we brought you shoulder high. It's the stanza from Hausman that Stallworthy gives us. And some of those same images are in here, but we see that like hard sing-song in Hausman. And Hausman's somebody that actually people do still continue reading, but you can see how this is like a little bit on the cheesier end of things. And as Owen is trying to break this up and make it a little bit darker and a little bit realer, this is quite different. But we're still in a place where I think that there's plenty for us to like laugh at a hundred years later and be like, yeah, well. I think that there is some, I, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to call it misogyny here. I think it's more complicated than simple misogyny, but there's a little bit of anger at women for fooling men into going to war. And some of that has to do with Owen's reaction to popular poets like Jesse Pope. And some of that I think also has to do with ultimately, I think in, in a certain way, his sexuality, but also in his way of identifying with military culture to the exclusion of civilian culture. And we see that in Sassoon as well. Now he will never feel again how slim girls' waists are or how warm their subtle hands, all of them touch him like some queer disease. It could just be strange, but it's also hard for me not to feel like there's an indication here that, that war does change your sexuality. It's not merely a sense of like it changes the way that people act towards you, but it's like he has changed. Am I wrong to read it that way? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think the war will just expose you to more emotions and you have a deeper understanding of what you do feel. So I think it'll open up some people to their sexuality and like loving people. Well, and as we see in so many of these poems, there's this sense of like, well, nobody in the civilian world would understand what I've gone through anyway. And so 
for Owen, there's this like very smooth slippage between a notion of soldierly camaraderie and erotic love. It's such a smooth slippage that it causes a lot of laughter for Anna because it sometimes just sounds silly or vulgar or... I'm not a prude. It's just, it's just the absurdity of it. I said it sounds silly or vulgar, yeah. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fucile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The songs in today's episode are The Slayer and Last Minute Pointer, both of which are on Refused Albums, Songs to Fan the Flames of Discontent. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at PointlessScent and follow us on Instagram at ThePointlessCentury. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tee Public merch and our Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century. Won't see the light shine with blood. My eyes, ah, won't see the light shine with blood. Your eyes, you won't see the light shine.